Today I came out because I can't believe we're still talking about this issue. My sign says I'm so damn tired of this fight. So tired that we can't focus on other things because we have to focus on this constantly. We've already done this 30 years ago and 30 years before that and it's time to stop this fight and let women choose what is right for their bodies. This is The Double Shift, and I'm your host, Katherine Goldstein. And I'm your co-host, Angela Garbez. And today, we are going to talk about something that's been on our minds a lot. Reproductive freedom. And as you can hear from the voices of those moms at Marches to Defend Reproductive Rights earlier this fall, it's really always on our minds. Yes, maddeningly so. The same fights that have been going on for decades are still going on. Still going on. But really amped up and scary because of who's on the Supreme Court right now. And the fact that new laws, like in Texas, which Mm -hmm. we're going to talk more about later in this episode, are allowed to actually go into effect, mean this is really basically game on time in protecting abortion rights. Yes, And while it's definitely important to stay up on what's happening in Texas and other states, obviously, and the Supreme Court, today we want to have a much more expansive conversation about what reproductive freedom really is. Yeah, and and what reproductive freedom really means to us as individuals, you and I, Angela. But also, you know, I also just want to say here at The Double Shift, we think— All stories and lived experiences from people who've had abortions matter, full stop. Like, we are all about those stories. And in this episode, though, we want to create space to elevate one segment of the population. You may be able to guess who that is. um, That we feel like it's really important to hear from right now. These are people who have already given birth and know truly what it means to bring a child into the world and care for them. And how that factors into their views on reproductive freedom. So we're going to hear from two different moms on this today. They are sharing experiences that I feel like I haven't heard as much, but these two guests, they very much speak for themselves. We heard from listeners about their experiences with abortion, and some of the emotions they brought up were feelings of relief or frustration with the insensitivity of their medical care. We heard about anger at the politicalization of their abortion care, And we also heard about devastating grief and heartbreaking decisions that no one ever wants to have to make. The stat that really helped us frame our thinking about this show is that 59% of abortion patients already have given birth to at least one child. And one of our listeners reached out to us days before she became part of that statistic herself. Hi, Catherine and Angela. This is Jessica from Portland. I am 39 years old. I have an almost two-year-old child. I've been partnered for a long time, and I am unexpectedly about six weeks pregnant and scheduled to have an abortion in a few days. So I am responding to your call for stories about having an abortion after a live birth and wanted to share with you my story. Jessica's now two-year-old was born a few months before the pandemic hit. She says she and her partner have, you know, managed okay, Mm -hmm. but family is very far away. And according to Jessica, the 
Pandemic plus U.S. white culture of individualism has made it impossible to build networks of care. Yes, Jessica. Oof. (laughs) She has major decision-making fatigue around managing risk for her unvaccinated toddler, hear you on this, Jessica, Mm -hmm. and around the pandemic in general. Um, Jessica and her partner had previously agreed to have only one child, but she says she sometimes second-guesses herself. I find myself wondering, like, how do all of these people I admire and care about do this? Like, how can they have careers and relationships and parent two or three or four kids? I I just, I see that and I think if they can do it, couldn't I do it? But then to my core, I just, I can't, I don't have the motivation or the fortitude to take on even more intensity of parenting, which would be the case, I think, with more than one kid. It sounds daunting to me, and I am a person who has a lot of resources of time and money and a committed partner who shares the load with me. But I think for me, pregnancy takes a physical and emotional toll. There are all kinds of gymnastics involved in finding childcare for the first five years of kids' lives in the United States. It's expensive. And I think, too, like curating life around the needs of multiple small children, it, it's, it's really confining in the configuration of the nuclear family in the United States. I can feel how this compromises a lot of the other things I'm interested in and my ambitions and my sense of self and having another kid would do that to an even greater degree. So I don't know. I I guess I'm clear about having an abortion this week. Um, I'm much less clear about the sort of bigger picture of family life in the U.S. And I see how constrained we are. And I think while I'm not grieving having an abortion, I'm definitely grieving this loss of reproductive freedom in a sense. We definitely don't have reproductive freedom in the United States when we are, you know, having to weigh so many factors when it comes to whether or not to have more children. So I don't know. Will it be different a year from now? Uh, Would I make a different choice in other conditions? I have no way of knowing. Um... So I guess I'm working with what I have for right now, and that's where I'm at. We'll hear more from Jessica later in the show. So, Angela, wow. Yeah. (laughs) This memo from Jessica, the first time I heard it, it just, it, it floored me. Everything she's saying is just so crystal clear and so mm. right and just so gutting and i think she put such a powerful spin on what reproductive freedom actually is it, to me she's <laughs> describing something that feels sort of universal or very relatable to a lot of parents but her language was so um it was just seemed so her like the words she chose like when she said you know i don't have the motivation or the fortitude to take on the intensity of parenting. Like, mm. I felt that viscerally, you know? And and there's also that description where she says, you know, you, you're curating your life around the needs of multiple small people. And that's, 
I mean, that's a really hard truth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I, when you I realize, you, like, Jessica. I'm not always yeah. in charge of this life, you know? Yeah. Another thing she said was that she's grieving, right? Yeah. And it's not grieving the abortion. It's grieving, like, life. <laughs> and like, yeah. then the, the lack of reproductive freedom and rights that people have. And there was one other thing that really stuck out to me that kind of gave me chills is where she says, you know, you can really feel like you know yourself. Your core is what she calls it. You you know yourself, but that idea of second guessing comes in because who you are, like in some ways, really can't be separated from American cultural conditioning, mm-hmm. um, which she calls confining. And so that's a yeah. really kind of a can I, I'm going to say it's just a mind fuck to find yourself in where you're like, I know who I am, but but do I? <laughs> like, right. how much have and- I been influenced? Yeah. Right. And we're all creatures of our culture and society, you know, mm-hmm. whether we're accepting it or, or trying to push back against it. Um, yeah. But yeah, yes. her her memo was so powerful. Um, yeah. I don't think I'd be letting out any secrets here by saying both of us were definitely pro-choice before we ever had kids. Um, yes. <laughs> so, you no, know, no we're coming— No big surprise here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we're coming from that perspective. But Angela, how have your views evolved since becoming a mother? Yeah, um, you know, my parents are devout Catholics who are pro-life. So mm-hmm. it was very much like I knew that, that that did not drive for me, right? But um, it's interesting. Like, I was always pro-choice, and it was very much like my body, my choice— a personal freedom kind mm-hmm. of issue, right? And since becoming a mother, I've become like actively unapologetically pro abortion, right? Mm-hmm. I say the word as much as possible. And to me, it's like this is a human right. This is yes. not like my personal thing, which is, I definitely saw it more, which I think is, makes sense. Like when you're young, like you frame things in terms of yourself. And my now body, I see it choice, so much, right? yeah, more yeah. as, and you know, there was that sort of, there, there is stigma around this, right? Like we didn't really talk about abortion, like except to say that it was bad, very bad. And you would go to hell if you were like even thinking about it, right? Within my own family. But I think there's also that, wasn't it like the like 90s Democrats were like, it should be, safe, legal, and rare. Yes, I think that was right? a Bill Clinton line. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, no, it, it should be abundant. We should have as many abortions as people need to have, right? And so I very much see it as like, it's not about choice to me. It is about a healthcare procedure that is a right. So it's abortion, abortion, abortion. And, you know, Catherine, one other important shift that has happened is that now now that I have a spouse and, you know, we're involved in day-to-day logistics and balancing both of our responsibilities and needs, is that I am increasingly obsessed with having men talk about how they benefit from abortion. Oh my God, I love this. Please tell me more. (laughs) (laughs) So it's kind of, you know, right now there's a little conversation happening about paternity leave, right? And when men take parental leave, how it's better for everyone. Yes. Right? Like, it's, it's this idea that somehow abortion and reproductive issues are women's issues, right? But I am, like, on my husband about this. I have been talking to him about how he needs to talk about abortion. He also needs to talk about, like, miscarriage and pregnancy loss, right? And how his life has been affected by that. But abortion specifically, like, his life is better. Like, we, I, well, I guess we, I mean, we had an abortion in 2009. Like, we had been together for two years and you know, I was feeling like we were pretty solid, right? But, like, there was no way I wanted to have a baby and no way that he wanted to. And I don't know what—I don't know if our relationship would have survived, 
if we mm. had done that. And certainly, like, his career goals, which at that point were much clearer than mine, um, would have been dramatically affected, right? And so I think we need to hear there are so many people out there having abortions, right? There are nearly an equal amount of men who have benefited or who have been part of the act that created a situation that required an abortion, right? But why do we never hear about it from them? That silence, to me, is what allows abortion to remain stigmatized and be called a women's issue when yes. it's like a human issue. Yes, this is so powerful. And I I totally agree. I would love to hear more men talking about how they've benefited from abortion and pro-reproductive rights, public policy, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And I would just say, I totally agree. I definitely am more pro-choice or maybe I should say pro-abortion yeah. than I was before I had kids. And I, because I mean, for many reasons, and one that like sticks out into my mind so vividly is like, I had terrible morning sickness with my pregnancies that, you know, required medication, like really bad. And I remember mm -hmm. thinking as I would be lying on the bathroom floor in like total nauseous agony that I can't imagine feeling this awful if I didn't actually want to be pregnant. I was like, this is so awful. Yeah. And I want to have this baby or babies. <laughs> yeah, it gets down to like, you shouldn't have to go through things if you don't want to be going through them. Yeah. I can't even imagine. I can only imagine. You don't want to be pregnant and your body's been hijacked by, like, little parasitic aliens that are making you feel <laughs> ill all the time. That's not a good place to be mentally or emotionally. <laughs> and, you know, another thing that has made, you know, shifted my thinking on this issue is that, so I haven't had an abortion, but I have thought a lot about how important reproductive health care is at all stages of life. And it's not, abortion is really not the only kind of health care, you know, people need for their full spectrum of reproductive life. So, yes. Yes. you know, something that I have talked about on the show is I had a late first trimester miscarriage in 2018, mm -hmm. and my doctor recommended that I have a DNC, which yeah. is basically the fetal remains are removed from the uterus. This is a surgical procedure. Mm -hmm. And it's also the exact same procedure that they use for surgical abortions, like mm -hmm. exact same thing. So I've thought a lot about why and, you know, whatever the reason someone is having a medical procedure, that should be completely private and between yes. them and their doctor. Mm -hmm. You know, whether it's for a miscarriage, a non-viable pregnancy, or an abortion, like, this is all healthcare, and we all have to keep reminding people of that. You know, if only people could be as um, insistent on, like, pap smears as they are. If only people had, like, this, like, conviction about your annual exam, right? Like, this is just one aspect of yes. healthcare, and And you're right. Like, the reasons to have an abortion, there's an infinite number of them. And it's personal. Yeah. Um, and abortion is economic justice. And these are topics that we are going to really dig into with our next guest. Uh, so for this interview, you should know that I have been in book writing land for the last couple of months. So this is all Catherine who is asking the questions. And our guest is a former abortion clinic worker, an activist, and she goes by the handle Abortion Diva. have on my everyone loves someone who had an abortion shirt i've got my favorite clinic jacket with all my buttons abortion and freedom like i'm just all about it right i'm just like loud and proud like i finally feel like i found my purpose my name is kenya martin i am 46 years old and my daughter is 20 she'll be 21 in december 
And I'm the communications project coordinator for the National Network of Abortion Funds. Kenya had abortions both before and after having her daughter two decades ago. But she only got interested in working in the field of abortion in 2015 after a medical emergency. Kenya had scheduled an appointment to get evaluated for an abortion. And while she was in the waiting room for her appointment, she started to feel pain. A lot of pain. And her providers couldn't find the pregnancy in her uterus and suspected an ectopic pregnancy. So an ectopic pregnancy is when an egg implants outside the uterus, most often in the fallopian tube. And Mm -hmm. this is a serious, life-threatening condition when untreated. So they sent her right to the emergency room. And three doctors, I don't know if you had three women doctors, rushed into my room. And they're like, we have to take you into surgery right now. And I'm like, right now? And they're like, yes, you ruptured your fallopian tube. You are bleeding internally. You have like a liter of blood in your uterus. We have to operate now. Kenya says the fact that she was seeking medical care for an abortion at the time of this emergency is what saved her life. She was so moved by the compassionate care she got at her abortion clinic in Houston that she asked for a job there and became a counselor. She hasn't always been loud and proud about her abortion experiences, but was inspired to do so after a conversation with a mother at the clinic who was grappling with her own decision to have an abortion. I just shared. I was like, well, you know, I'm a mom. And I've had an abortion since I've been a mom. And we know best. We know whether or not we can do this or not. I mean, we are amazing humans, but at the same time, the reality is, is it's not always easy. It's not all sunshine and rainbows like the society has painted to, to, to be. I saw like the look on her face, like her demeanor, everything just changed in that moment just from having that conversation. And I remember her sharing with me, you know, that me telling her about my abortion just really helped her so much. At the same time, I felt freed. Because I didn't realize that I was carrying a lot of internalized stigma. I just thought when I was having my abortions, I was just doing what was best for me. But I think I wasn't talking about it because I did feel some shame about it. Kenya has gotten more and more involved in telling her stories, not just privately, publicly. She's become what she calls an abortion storyteller with an organization called We Testify, which works in part to elevate the voices of people who have abortions. This kind of work is so important because there's so much we can all do to change our perceptions and stereotypes about abortion and abortion care. Mm -hmm. And, And telling stories really is a big part of that. Abortion care providers save lives. Like, there can be a different narrative. And we can change that by talking about it. People think it's like really dark, right? You have people like, how can you do that work? It's so dark. And I'm like, it's really not. There's so much love in this clinic. Like we love our patients and we're willing to go to war for them. And, you know, we want to protect them and make them feel safe and and let them know that we get it and we understand and we want to support you through this and whatever you decide. Coming up, More from the abortion storyteller, Kenya Martin. So one of my personal obsessions that I think so many families should consider is co-housing. 
Our episode, Don't Call Me Mom, Call Me Ted, was set in a co-housing community, and we've also talked about it in other episodes. With its common spaces and strong community, it offers kids freedom and independence to roam and connect with nature that is honestly hard to find these days, all with loving neighbors invested in your kids' lives. Right now, there's an opportunity to actually get in on a great community that's about to start construction. Co-housing ABQ owns four acres of land along the beautiful Rio Grande, just minutes from downtown Albuquerque. The community already has 12 kids and many aunties and grandparents, and they've supported one another through COVID and before, creating a culture of trust, fun, and care. All they need to be complete is you. Go to cohousingabq.org slash the double shift to check out their website and sign up for an info session. Honestly, browsing this website, this place looks really dreamy, and I'm not going to lie, it kind of makes me want to pick up and move to Albuquerque. So go check it out and learn more about how Cohousing ABQ can become your village. That's cohousingabq.org slash the double shift. It's also linked in our show notes. Hey, Double Shifters, it's Catherine. I am so glad you're enjoying our rich back catalog of episodes. And as you may know, we aren't putting out new episodes right now, but we're doing some really cool work we want you to know about. And we'd like to stay in touch with you. Please sign up for our weekly newsletter, which is full of great storytelling and ideas about the forces that shape family life in America. To sign up, go to thedoubleshift.com slash newsletter. Also, we have a robust member community that's full of amazing moms from all over the world with Zoom hangouts on super interesting topics like creativity and challenging the status quo at work. We're building more and more ways for you all to get to know and support each other. That's just so important right now. We're also planning some great member benefits like audio newsletters. So if you particularly like connecting with us through listening, It's a great way to keep double shift thinking in your ears and in your life. Also, we are a scrappy small business and your support helps us do what we do. Thoughtful journalism that tells important stories and challenges the status quo of motherhood and beyond. To become a member, go to thedoubleshift.com slash join. So remember, sign up for our free newsletter so we can stay in touch with you. It's thedoubleshift.com slash newsletter. And consider becoming a member. Go to thedoubleshift.com slash join. Membership starts at $5 a month. Thanks. We're back. And I gotta say, Catherine, I'm kind of jealous that I didn't have a chance to interview Kenya. I wish you were there, too. I always love, I, I wish you had been there, too. It was a great conversation. Yeah, I can, like, feel her energy. And um, I'm just going to have to live vicariously through you. So here's more from your conversation with Kenya. A question I have is that I think historically, especially, but also in this work today, White women have often sort of been lifted up as spokeswomen for the abortion rights movement. And I'm just curious, how has that impacted your activism and your passion about speaking out of your own story and doing this abortion storytelling as a Black woman? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, 
Yeah, so it's actually a big thing with the organization uh, We Testify, which is what the goal was to lift the voices of people you don't normally hear talk about their abortions, like people of color, Black people, people from marginalized communities. So being a Black woman and actually telling my story, I'm really talking to other Black women because I want us to know that it's okay. You were doing what was best for you. We trust you. It's important that we have these conversations because there is a lot of stigma within our community. We've just been conditioned to be silent about it when we really do need to be loud and proud about it because we are the ones who are having it. When you hear um, them talk about the statistics that Black women have the most abortions or people of color have the most abortions, but you never see any of those stories portrayed in like some of the movies or, or TV uh, media, you don't see a lot of that. So I think it's important that um, we have Black women who are okay talking about it, like myself, so we can hear about why it's so important that our communities have access to abortion, because a lot of us don't have resources. Like, that's another big one. Um, and we don't feel safe. Or, or, or the maternal mortality rate is super high among Black women, So our Black people. So that also informs why it's important for me as a Black woman to talk about my abortions. And I learned that it was so important being in that clinic when I would have someone come in that counseling room who looked like me, that they had someone there that they could relate to. I mean, because the reality is, is that we don't relate to white women. It is what it is. So when you see someone that looks like you, you feel safe. You know, like that's a real thing with us. So for me being in that clinic, knowing that they could see me over there and can feel safe was a good thing. And I think it's the same way being out here loud and proud and talking about my abortions. I've had people that come up to me like at this past Women's March in D.C. And they were like, oh, my God, I cannot believe that you, a Black woman, was on that platform talking about this as freely as you were talking about it. If you had some abortions, make some noise. So I think that's why it's even more important in this time that we see each other leading this work because, I mean, we kind of started this work. Like we've been doing this. I mean, the birth of the reproductive justice movement was started by Black women. So I also just think it's very important that our stories are included, that the other narrative that you just was doing what was best for you, that there's not some sad story, you know, that some of us can be happy and and celebrate having access to abortion also is so important, especially coming from Black people, because we deserve joy and we deserve to have health care and have people trust that we know what's best for us. Getting people to just learn to trust us. That's, that's what this work is about. Like, we have free will. We have the autonomy um, to do what's best for us. And, and people just need to mind their business, basically. <laughs> So true. So many things could be solved in the world if people just minded their business, I feel like. Totally. Um, so um, you you just touched on this, and I'm really interested in, in expanding our conversations around reproductive freedom and justice beyond just like, do people have access to abortion services nearby? Because like that is very important, but that's also one very limited piece of a conversation about, you know, reproductive freedom and justice. And, you know, I think including 
parts of conversations like, do people have the resources and social support to have the size of the family they want? Are people treated with appropriate medical care? Like, So I would love to hear what you think needs to be included more in the conversations around like, what is true reproductive freedom? Like, and how do we empower, especially communities of color to have like, what is true reproductive freedom? Wow. <laughs> yeah. True reproductive freedom. That could look like like our community having resources, having access to healthcare, being able to go to the doctor and not feeling like you can't afford to go in and get that care because that's a real thing. Like there are so many people in my community who don't have medical insurance. Let's be real. Money, finances, that's a barrier to a lot of healthcare. Not just being able to have an abortion, but being able to get the right type of maternal care that you need if you do want to carry children to term. So that's a real thing. And um, that one, it's just, when I just think about it, it really is heartbreaking too, because as a Black woman, as a single mom who has had some financial struggles, who has made the decisions to have abortions based on my finances and not wanting to continue to be a single parent and not being able to give the children what they needed, you know, that really does hit home because I know that's a real thing. And it's also a very real thing that we're scared. We're scared to even carry children a term. We're scared to have our babies in the hospital because even that place is traumatizing. You know, I had a very traumatizing delivery that made me never want to have children again. So that's also very real. In a perfect world, we could have the resources, we could have perfect health care, we could, you know, feel safe to have all of the children that we desire or not. But it's not like that. We'll be right back to hear more from Kenya about her thoughts on the recent Texas abortion law and to get an update from Jessica. Okay, so before we hear more from Kenya, Angela, I want to give our listeners just a little update on some of the biggest issues around abortion rights happening right now here in the U.S., Yes, please do that. Okay, there's a lot going on. So (laughs) (laughs) I know, partly I was like, for me, can you just uh, bring me up to speed too? (laughs) Yes. So on September 1st, a law called SB8 went into effect in Texas. And Mm -hmm. I, I don't even know the word to describe it. I mean, outrageous, honestly, seems like an understatement, but- Cruel? Basic, yeah. Maybe just cruel? Yeah. Basically, it bans all abortions after six weeks- which is only typically two weeks after a missed period, no exceptions for rape or incest. And also, this law created this bananas vigilante system. I can't even believe I'm describing this, where anyone can sue anyone else for, quote, aiding and abetting a pregnant person for seeking abortion care and can receive a $10,000 bounty for doing so. I mean, the level to which this um, criminalizes people, pregnant people, just for existing is beyond. It's beyond, beyond. Um, And this this is the law in Texas right now. Yes. And according to NARAL, which is a reproductive freedom organization, this has resulted in a 
706% increase, a 700, I just need to say that again, a 706% increase in Texans seeking abortion care in nearby states. Yeah. And so the law is rightfully getting a ton of attention, um, but NARAL points out that this is just one of over 90 of the abortion access restrictions that have been enacted in various states across the country in this year alone. This year alone, yes. The year's not even over yet. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, so Catherine, can you break down what's happening with the Supreme Court on all of this? Yeah. Okay. I'm going to keep it brief because it's complicated, but the Supreme Court allowed this Texas bill to go into effect. And at the time of our recording, they have actually been hearing other legal challenges to it. But while they're deciding overall, you know, all these different legal challenges, this law is in full swing. Mm -hmm. And the Supreme Court is also hearing a case on December 1st, 2021, out of Mississippi that legal experts say could pose a direct challenge to Roe versus Wade. This law bans abortions after 15 weeks. Mm -hmm. And depending on the ruling, it could just allow states to impose more and more restrictions. Um, no one is sure exactly what will happen. And a decision likely won't come until June 2022. Why does all of this, why is all of this happening at once? Like, why does it seem to be happening all at once? Yes, it seems to be happening all at once because it is happening all at once. Okay. <laughs> um, and a lot of it is happening right now because the court is much more conservative with three Trump appointees on it. Mm. And they are actually hearing more cases on these restrictions and allowing them to go into effect, which is different than how the Supreme Court operated in the past. A lot of times um. they would just pass on hearing these cases huh. and let lower courts strike down these kinds of restrictions. So anti-choice state legislators are just fired up to pass more restrictions because they think they have a better chance than ever of getting them upheld than they ever have before. I mean, this is like, I don't want to say... This is going to sound weird, but it's it's just such an organized effort, right? Oh yes. <laughs> that oh, yes. Um, I'm just yeah. wondering why um, those of us on the other side of this cannot cannot seem to be quite as organized. Um, mm -hmm. And the other thing I want to say is I just want to have a moment of silence for Merrick Garland, oh. <laughs> <laughs> who you know was supposed to be on the Supreme Court. I feel like we have not yeah. we we've let his name slip out, you know. And I know he's landed with a, a nice job now, but. Um, he was supposed to be on the Supreme Court, and it, you know, like, I feel like it shouldn't have come to this, right? If things right. like this has been happening for years, right? Yeah. Okay, so now that we have that update, let's turn back to Kenya and a question from you, Catherine. I'm thinking right now about the law that went into effect in Texas, and you worked in an abortion clinic in Texas, and so obviously you are deeply connected to this issue. And I'm just, I'm I'm curious, like, the idea that so many women lack resources holistically to make these choices. And so then there's a legislative decision to say you can't, you, this option of having abortion after six weeks is no longer available to you. Like, how does that make you feel thinking about all of the people you've counseled and all the, all the human stories you've heard over the years? Gosh, that damn SBA. It's... I'm still dealing with the, like, is this real? Let me pinch myself. Like, 
that they really just ban abortion as, after six weeks in Texas. And yes, it is very real. And I remember days coming into the clinic. Let me say it was a small clinic and we were a very high volume clinic because there weren't very many clinics um, in the surrounding areas and people would travel to come to our clinic. And the way that our doctor operated, he never wanted to say no. He never wanted to turn people away or make them wait any longer, you know, because of the barriers that do happen um, when you're trying to access. So I remember being in the clinic, people are sitting next to each other, wall to wall. Uh, we are packed for the day. And I just had a moment of thinking like, and I said to people in the hallway, I'm like, you know, what would you do? What would you all do if you called this clinic and you got to do, do, do this? The number you're dialing is no longer in service. Like, how would that make you feel? Just thinking about you being in here in this moment, you, you are here to do what you need to do. But what if you couldn't? What if you weren't able to? And the fact that we are actually here now, it stresses me out. It stresses me out because I think about the day-to-day of being in that clinic and knowing how many patients we serviced. And I know that there are people right now who are not being able to get the care that they need because of this stupid law. It's basically a way of forcing parenthood on people. You know, how can you force people to parent when they're not ready or if they never even want to? Like, it's so, it's so horrible and it's, it's racist. It's, it's cruel. Either they're going to be forced to parent or they're going to have to travel out of state to get the care that they need. And we we were already talking about how people don't have resources. You think they got a travel fund somewhere, you know? And it's like when you talk about how abortion is kind of portrayed and, you know, we normally see the stories of white women. I saw a story where they talked about a woman that was traveling from Texas to Colorado to get an abortion, white woman, with resources. Because she even said, she was like, you know, I was able to tap into our travel fund and um, use that money to be able to travel and go get my abortion. And I'm like, why is this story being told? We don't need to see somebody who is able to access it because those are not the people that this law is going to impact. It's going to impact the people who are having to not pay their rent this month to be able to get their abortion, who are not going to be able to pay their, their daycare bills or their light bills or be able to feed their children because they need to access an abortion. Those are the stories that we need to hear on the news. Not her. I can't even believe they aired it. Right. I mean, like, I was like, wait a minute. Pause. Rewind. Did she just say she moved her money from her travel fund? Wow. What privilege. Man, that must be a beautiful thing to have that kind of privilege. A whole travel fund? I need one of those. I think there's a narrative that there's an okay reason. There's acceptable reasons to have an abortion. There's acceptable narratives and that there's other reasons that are not acceptable. And it's okay to make a mistake one time, but if you make a mistake more than one time, that's a moral judgment on you. You know, what have you seen in your experience about the acceptable reasons, I'm using air quotes, (laughs) acceptable reasons to have abortions and then the sort of the sort of like lack of like I can, people can be sympathetic about one, but if you've had more than one, then there's no there's no empathy for that experience. Yeah, it's such bullshit. You know, abortion anytime, any reason. It doesn't matter the reason. Like whatever your reason is, is a good reason. 
you know, some of the acceptable reasons, as you said, with air quotes, you know, like if you found out you had a fetal anomaly or like if the, the fetus wasn't going to survive or I mean, even if you did carry to term, it wouldn't survive outside of the womb for more than a few hours or like it's acceptable to have an abortion if it threatens the life of the mother or the person who's carrying it. You know, but for me, any reason is acceptable. I trust the person who is making that decision to know what's best for them. You know, if you had a night of some random sex with this stranger person and you don't even know their lives, their family lives, their what's in their DNA, like, does it really make sense or is it logical to want to procreate with this person? I don't think so. So if you want to have an abortion for that, good for you. Like, you know what you want. You know what kind of person you want to procreate with. Don't do it. If you had sex with somebody who got you pregnant and didn't even give you an orgasm, like, do you really want to have a kid with someone who can't even make you come? Like, that is horrible. You know, like, that's a very good reason. You know, I I got pregnant like that. (laughs) Like, I cannot believe he got me pregnant. In that one pump, but he did, you know? (laughs) So there's so many differences. To me, at the end of the day, you know, we have abortions because we wanted to, you know? It It was a choice that you wanted to make, what was doing what's best for you. You did what you wanted to do. There really doesn't have to be a reason. And I wish we would hear more of that, you know, as a narrative. Like, we we just wanted to. And be the end, period. We had abortions because we wanted to. I don't owe you an explanation. Next. Trust me. (laughs) So, Angela, what did you think of Kenya's story? Oh, where to begin? Um, (laughs) There's so many things. I, um, it just really had me, uh, Kenya had me in my feelings in a deep way. Um, And you know, she's talking about her experience as a Black woman, but um, I felt so personally moved because there were some things that really resonated with me as a Filipina person and as a woman of color. This is something that I have talked about a lot, and I wrote about it in my book, which is that the experience of having a provider um, who looks like you, which is not something I've ever really had, mm-hmm. like th- someone that you can just like implicitly trust, right, in, in any sort of healthcare setting, like that's so important to people. And I think that that's something that a lot of people, unless you've like lived that life, like don't really understand how meaningful that can be. Right. Um, Also the way she talked about the stigma around abortion that comes from our own communities. That's very real. Um, My family is Catholic, as I mentioned, and Catherine, I know you've spent a few hours interviewing my mother about various things in life. Um, You know, it's, I'm not ashamed of having an abortion, but um, it took me almost 10 years to tell my parents that I had one because I knew that it would be a really difficult moment in our relationship. And, you know, I waited until, like, I already had a child and was married. And even then, it really did not go well. Like, it was um, it was one of the more painful conversations of my life with them. Yeah, I I think this feeling of shame and stigma is really common, and we actually mm-hmm. had some other listeners write us sharing their stories about this, especially and specifically around, you know, feeling shame about telling their own parents. Like, this is definitely something that comes up for a lot of people. 
Yeah, it's something that's like so personal and the, you know, the desire to share, to be seen by people who care about you and people who you love is very real. Um, something else that Kenya brought up that I think we need to pause and dwell on for a moment is that the reproductive justice framework and movement was started by Black women. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. I feel like they have been, there's been serious erasure of mm-hmm. these Black women and their contribution um, to the reproductive freedom movement and, and just in creating reproductive justice. And, you know, this is something that I didn't know about until I started researching and actively learning on my own. You know, this is stuff that I don't, I don't know what your experience is, but this is not something I was ever taught. No, definitely right. not. And so this is a real leadership that, again, has been erased. And I think it's really important. I think it's on us to educate ourselves on this history. Um, And if anyone is looking for a good place to start, I have to say that the book Reproductive Justice by Loretta Ross and Ricky Selinger, who are founders of this movement, um, was really crucial for me. That's a great recommendation. And we're going to link to that book in the show notes. And I just wanted to say thank you, Kenya, for just like mm. really framing for us what is at stake, mm-hmm. who is hurt by abortion restrictions, mm-hmm. and also for making it just so clear that reproductive freedom is economic freedom. Yes. And reproductive freedom is actually about supporting families. Before we wrap up this episode, we did want to let you know that we heard back from Jessica, the listener you heard at the beginning of the show. Hey, Angela and Catherine. This is Jessica calling again just to update you that I had my abortion almost a week ago. And I'm feeling so much relief, so much better this week than I had been for the last month or so waiting to have an abortion. The care I received was excellent. It was really straightforward. Unfortunately, there were protesters outside the building where the clinic is. It was interesting to notice in the clinic sort of the security measures that they have to take and kind of overhearing some of the staff conversation just about various security guards supporting them and the ongoing challenges that they have to navigate. So it's just an interesting extra layer of what they are all managing in addition to taking good care of the people who come through. I think one of the things that stood out to me about the actual experience was that, you know, they were really attentive and had enough information about me to do their jobs, but it was so clear that they had no interest in, you know, why I was there. And it was, it, it, it didn't feel neglectful. It felt, um, it felt respectful. It felt non-judgmental and really supportive. Um, I think I felt a little bit of sadness that day, you know, just this sort of struggle with this broader life choice about how many children to have and feeling confined by so many structural constraints, really, and isolation. And so, yeah, I think I had some sadness that having another kid is not something I am interested in doing or feel like I can do right now, given the conditions of the world and of uh, my life. But beyond that, I just 
felt primarily very relieved to have had such good abortion care. So I just wanted to send you that update, and thanks so much. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And thank you to all the other Double Shift listeners who have sent in emails and voice memos about their experiences with abortion after live birth. And we want to end this episode with some inspiration from Kenya. Remember to donate to your local abortion fund because abortion funds need money right now to be able to get people to their care. And uh, we got to vote. We got to vote these racist people out who do not want us to have the care that we need. Yeah. We'll be back next time with a show on another huge topic that is related to reproductive freedom and has been in the news a lot lately, paid family leave. Be sure you're subscribed so you don't miss it. And don't forget to go to thedoubleshift.com slash join to become a member. It starts at $5 a month. And if you're able to pay by the year, that helps us even more. Remember, Double Shift members get an ad-free show and super fun members-only hangouts. We can't make this show without you. And have you signed up for our newsletter? This is the best way to stay in touch with us as we keep you updated on all things Double Shift and share feminist perspectives on motherhood that you need. Go to thedoubleshift.com slash newsletter to sign up. The Double Shift is created and hosted by me, Katherine Goldstein. Our co-host is Angela Garbez. Our senior producer is Rachel McCarthy. Our producer is Olivia Richardson. Our editor is Anita Rao. Our research assistant is Jada Hester. Music by Travis Morrison and Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme song is by Palehound. Our mixer is Corey Schreppel. We're funded in part by the generous support of you, our members. We can't do this without you. Go to thedoubleshift.com slash join to become a member. We are independently produced and distributed. Thanks for being part of The Double Shift. The Double Shift.